0: This is Macro Horizons, episode 31, Summer of Endless Dove, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of August 12th. And to paraphrase the Donald, currency wars are good and easy to win. Oh, Wait. bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. So it was an eventful week in the Treasury market, so much for the summer doldrums. We're in the middle of August, and we've already seen a couple very dramatic changes in the global macro landscape. Obviously, the Fed delivered their first rate cut. It was followed by an escalation in terms of the trade war, the president announcing an additional 10% tariff on the remaining Chinese imports as a result. Beijing depreciated the yuan, and this triggered a broad risk-off movement which weighed on equity prices, and it also brought 10-year yields well below where they had been trading previously. In fact, rates repriced, call it, 35 to 40 basis points over the course of five trading days, which in treasury space is a very, very rare occurrence. We took a look at the change in 30-year yields on a five-day basis and in absolute terms, and what we saw is that the move that we have experienced over the last five days in 30-year yields is comparable to only three other episodes in the last decade, the first being the 2016 election when Trump and the GOP won, That particular episode was bearish for the Treasury market, but the prior two, one being the Operation Twist and Eurozone crisis, and then the more obvious being the financial crisis, were bullish for the Treasury market. So that's just a very long way of saying that there has been a material rethink in terms of pricing in the Treasury market. Now, Obviously, part of that had to do with the trade war. But at the same time, we've seen several central banks in Asia come through with rate cuts of their own following the Fed's lead. Now, this is very consistent with the concerns about a potential trade war and the race to the bottom in terms of policy rates. So this is undoubtedly going to be a market focus going forward. In terms of our call on the treasury market, we haven't changed as a result of this rally. The bid for treasuries is very consistent with the seasonals. We almost invariably tend to rally throughout the summer, the low yield point being the 15th of September on average. So this is keeping with our general take on how this year was going to play out. The extent of the rally definitely brings up a few very important questions. The first of which is, how far can this extend? The short answer, we've simply been using the summer of 2016 as our initial guide. And the vast majority of trading activity during that period occurred in a range of 1.45% 10-year yields to 175. So if we sustainably go back into that zone, which we've already hit 167, I wouldn't be surprised to see an attempt at 150 made in the next several weeks. Again, that's predicated on a few things, not least of which is there isn't a grand compromise or anything particularly positive that comes out of the negotiation between Trump and China. And frankly, at this point, that's hard to imagine. I don't think that we're going to see a trade deal in 2019. If there is a trade deal in 2020, it will be window dressing at best. And the stance coming out of Beijing at the moment actually suggests that they're going to simply try to wait out Trump and Assume that there is a different approach to trade negotiations after the 2020 election. Unclear how it will play out, obviously, but it's pretty clear that both sides have become even more entrenched over the course of the last week. The shape of the yield curve has been a bit perplexing to us, frankly. We've been playing for the cyclical re-steepening of the two stins curve, and what we've actually seen this week is the opposite. We've seen a pretty significant flattening that brought Tends to new cycle flats. Now, that doesn't mean an inversion is right around the corner, but it's a very important message being sent to the Fed by the market, and the message is either a lack of faith in the Fed's willingness to act as aggressively as they need to at this point in the cycle, or. An underlying concern that even if the Fed does shockingly surprise on the dovish side, it won't ultimately be enough to rekindle inflationary ambitions. Now, there's a bit of a nuance to this argument, which I think is important, and that is investors might simply be saying, hey, the Fed might be able to rekindle inflationary ambitions domestically, but at the end of the day, that isn't what's driving the outright level of 10- and 30-year yields. The experience in Europe at the moment with negative 10-year German yields, even despite rumblings of fiscal stimulus out of Frankfurt, is very telling. And we expect that for that reason, we will see a limit to how far any backup in 10 and 30-year yields can go at this point. This is largely regardless of how the market interprets the Fed's actions over the course of the next two or three months. So it's certainly been an exciting period in the Treasury market. Until the beginning of this week, we actually didn't know what China's response to the recent escalation of the trade war would be, and now we've seen it, a depreciation of the yuan above the pivotal seven level. But it wasn't done in such a way that really suggested that the follow-through was going to be several weeks long, or that there was another material leg lower to go in the value of the currency. That said, it is still very much an open question. I think the most sustainable move that we saw in the treasury market was a rather dramatic repricing to a much lower level of outright yields. For context, the 10-year auction, which stopped at 167, represented a 40 basis point rally from where the market was just five trading days prior.
2: And some of the price action... I would argue, was starting to get out over its skis and exacerbated by self-reinforcing dynamics. And what I mean by that is it's either partly due to some positioning washout and accounts that tried to get short and catch this falling knife just to have it push further, or a bit of a gamma squeeze, which is this weird thing, in derivatives that can cause a rally to have to be forced to keep rallying. We've seen that kind of dynamic play out multiple times over the past five years or so. One day in particular comes to mind back from February 2016, where you saw something like a 15 basis point rally in 10s without an obvious new impulse. Wednesday this past week felt somewhat like that. And the parallel I'm drawing here is because if you look back to that period in February 2016, there was call it a 15 basis point retracement in the aftermath. This time around, one, I don't think it's as violent of a retracement as necessary. But even if you get that 15 basis point retracement on net, that gets you to, what, 175? So we have moved to a significantly lower yield plateau. And even if some of the initial pricing was overblown at first, it does seem that we're setting ourselves up to stay in this range for the time being. Well, you make a very good point, John. The market does
0: tend to reprice rather violently and then stabilize with a period of consolidation. The big question that we're grappling with at this moment is whether or not we're in that period of consolidation or if the rally has simply taken a break and we'll see another leg lower in yields. Still very conceivable that 10-year yields make it to that 150 mark. But as we grind through the summer months, it will be very telling to see how risk assets respond or continue to respond to the ongoing uncertainties created by the trade war. And you made an interesting point in drawing the parallels with February of 2016. What strikes me is during that period, we were grappling with not entirely dissimilar issues. There was trouble in Asia. Now, granted, it wasn't a result of a trade war per se, but there was this collective notion that the global economy might be in for a material downturn. And for context, we subsequently saw a rally in the 10-year sector during the first half of 2016 that brought yields to their record low of 1.32%. That is a level that I've heard brought up several times over the course of the last week as the potential bottom, or in some cases, a target for the market if we do see a near-term extension of the rally. Another thing that really struck me was there has been a clear collective shift by global central banks to undertake a series of preemptive moves. This week alone, we saw India, New Zealand, Thailand, and the Philippines all cut rates. And in one way, shape, or form, they all used the exact same language and rationale that we've heard from the Fed. It was the moves were both preemptive and as a result
2: of relatively low global inflation. I would say that the 2016 analogy has a couple other important parallels to the current environment. One, just being the observation that back in February 2016, there was this big Brexit risk thing just a few months out. Obviously, we're kind of staring down the same abyss. Now there's been a little bit more clarity, but kind of that assumption of there's no way there will be a hard Brexit, right? Right. Is kind of a parallel to there's no way they'll actually vote for Brexit, right? The other thing that I'd point out is back in 2016, one of the things that seems to have stabilized macro sentiment was an agreement either believed or in actuality between some of the major central banks to stabilize different currencies. And this agreement, okay, fair enough, that happened a few years ago. Given the level of rhetoric and increasing concern about a currency war, It strikes me that it's a little bit less likely this time around. That creates a scenario where it's possible to see a race to the bottom. Okay, so you see a bunch of central banks all cut. The problem then is one of the classic benefits of cutting is some exchange rate depreciation in order to provide a bit of an export boost. You don't get that this time around. And instead, really, all the release valve has to be in rates if it's not coming out of the FX channel. But with rates so low, this further hinders global monetary policies effectiveness and frankly could lead to some concerns about financial stability not just in the US but much more broadly you make the point that the upside
0: of currency depreciation i.e. a boost to exports isn't going to occur during this cycle and is that simply because everyone is effectively simultaneously trying to depreciate their currencies and as a result we won't see any of the more typical massive repricings that we might otherwise anticipate
2: I think that's about right. And, you know, everyone's kind of looking at the same playbook. It's, oh, global growth is slowing. You're worried about disinflation or outright deflation in your economy. You cut rates, but everybody's looking at the whole thing simultaneously. It creates almost like a prisoner's dilemma dynamic where everybody's a little bit worse off having cut rates, but no one has an incentive to not. So you kind of reprice an equilibria from Low, but at least positive rates to everybody a little bit lower or negative and kind of in a similar boat. Well, that brings up a few thoughts I've been having recently
0: about Stockholm syndrome.
2: I really enjoy working with you, John. It's about time, Ian. But more generally, it seems that the whole world and global trade dynamic is held hostage to the back and forth between Trump and Xi. From what I can tell, political rhetoric, and not just in that environment. One of the points I'd like to make is there's a lot of geopolitical risk out there. Huge focus on the trade war, but in addition to things like Brexit, tensions in Hong Kong, you have North Korea actually firing missiles again. The chance of another flight to quality flow, in addition to what we've already seen, seems high. One geopolitical consultancy I pay attention to flagged that normally some event like this happening is something like a 1% to 5% likelihood. They see something like 10 different possible negative scenarios, each with a 10 to 30% likelihood. So on net, the actual realization of a couple of those is downright reasonable, if not to be expected. And what we mean by realization of a couple of those, it would be something like Brexit or something like a sudden ratcheting up of tensions in the Strait of Hormuz outside of Iran, leading to a spike in oil prices. So The increase in implied and realized volatility that we're seeing, even if we have a period of consolidation over a couple weeks, there are some major geopolitical risks in the future that will continue to leave the treasury market exposed to another leg lower. And from a macroeconomic perspective, I think it's important to keep in
0: mind that these geopolitical risks, while they might trigger a flight to quality at the detriment of risk assets, they ultimately do have some real implications for global growth, for The level of uncertainty that is currently in the market and to a large extent has driven the Fed and other central banks to take this more preemptive approach to monetary policy at a moment in which the outright economic data doesn't necessarily suggest that such a move is warranted. This actually brings up a topic that we've been discussing and we've heard several questions about over the course of the last week, and that is, what is the probability that the Fed chooses to either go 50 basis points in September or deliver a emergency intermediate ease. I would say that the chances, while non-zero, if we look at what's priced into the futures market, the real chances that the Fed would do an emergency intermediate ease are next to zero. After all, we don't quite yet have
2: an emergency, right? I agree 100% with that. I think the chance of a 50 basis point cut is certainly positive. And I wouldn't put my base case as 50 yet. However, if you look at where inflation expectations are, if you look at where kind of what the market is suggesting, the future path of rates and the future expected growth period in the U.S. to be, it's a pretty dark outlook. We saw five-year break-evens at 1.3%. That's extremely low. And if you're the Fed, you're watching this, that alone provides you the incentive to not only follow the market pricing, But frankly, you have to cut more than that because the market's saying you're going to cut and we're only going to get 1.3%. Charlie Evans, the Chicago Fed president, made a case somewhat like this saying outside of everything else, the low level of inflation expectations alone justifies additional easing. And they are really, really low. And if we take a
0: look at the shape of the yield curve, I think this is telling you the exact same thing. We actually saw Tuesday's tins push to new cycle lows this week, which for a group that's been expecting the cyclical re-steepening of the yield curve, it was quite a notable development to put it diplomatically. However, if we take a step back and we look at what the market is saying to the Fed, it's exactly that. The Fed is expected to deliver a series of quarter point rate cuts, and the 10-year yield continues to rally, which suggests one of two things. Either one, the market doesn't have faith in the Fed's willingness to act aggressively enough to offset any material slowdown in the U.S. economy, or, and this is the one that I think is a bit more troubling, the market doesn't have faith in the Fed's ability to actually stimulate inflation. The market could very easily be saying with 10-year yields at 170, that even if the Fed does deliver the 100 basis points of net easing that's currently reflected in the futures market, it's not going to do anything to inflation and inflation expectations anyway. And so the grab for duration, which has capped 10-year yields, and frankly, 30-year yields as well at this point, corresponding with 10-year German yields at negative 60 basis points really does tell a story about
2: structurally lower inflation expectations for much longer. So that's a fair point. If the market doubts the Fed's ability in its current framework to hit its 2% target, could the Fed evolve the framework? And where I'm hinting at that with is we've been on about the idea of price-level targeting or average inflation targeting – is it about time that that starts to come back into the fold as a possible policy evolution from the fed or does that look like they're just trying to move the goalposts to try to pull a rabbit out of the hat and get break evens back towards two percent i've always been of the mind that they need to
0: roll out price level targeting at the right moment in time for monetary policy? And is the right moment now before they push up against the effective lower bound? Or does it occur after they have done everything that they can to move inflation expectations simply by cutting rates within the prevailing framework? I tend to err on the side of it is, in and of itself, an extremely powerful signaling tool. So why not keep it in reserve until? policymakers are convinced that simply cutting rates won't do it this particular cycle.
2: In some ways, isn't that what the market's already telling the
0: Fed? Exactly. That's what the market is telling the Fed, but that is not the message that we have been getting from the Fed. And it certainly isn't the message that we've been getting from other global
2: central banks. So I would say that there are two takeaways from this. is One, Real yields are going lower, and that's either going to be because the Fed cuts more aggressively and inflation expectations stay low, which causes the Fed to cut more aggressively, or inflation expectations pick up with a lower expected path of nominal rates that pushes real yields down. Look for fives and tens reels to move negative as early as the next few days. The other question I guess I'd have for you, Ian, I gave up on twos, tens, inverting back in March when the Fed said they were going to stop hiking short of neutral. Do you think 2s, 10s goes negative this cycle? The probability of 2s, 10s inverting just got a lot higher
0: this last week. Part of it was the price action, part of it was the global grab for yield, as well as the ongoing persistent uncertainties, which have only escalated as a result of the trade war. I've long maintained that the shape of the yield curve and the potential for inversion really comes down to the Fed and the Fed's willingness, or to the earlier point, ability to over-deliver on the dovish side. Now, the only way that the curve doesn't invert at this point is if the Fed is able to orchestrate another dovish surprise between now and the end of the summer. The current momentum has clearly been a grind flatter and flatter on the curve. And another observation in that context that's worth making is this has all occurred in a bullish fashion. It's not as though the front end of the curve is anchored at a particularly high outright level. In fact, with two-year yields in a 155 to 160 range, there's no question that a fair amount of easing is already being actively priced into the front end of the curve. It just comes back to this fundamental question of whether or not it's ultimately going to be enough. We're still very much of the mind that the next 75 basis points in twos tens is steeper and it's not flatter, but that doesn't preclude a dip below zero to slightly inverted in the two's tens curve. More importantly, and I think this is very much on the mind of policymakers, and that's the curve that the Fed really cares about, which is the three-month bill versus 10-year curve has been inverted and remains inverted reaching below negative 30 basis points. And John, as you pointed out earlier this week, for the first time in this cycle, we're now seeing Fed funds versus 30 years inverted.
2: Which is pretty remarkable in and of itself. And frankly, when I heard that, I looked back and I was like, is this the first time this has ever happened? No, it's not. But... It's a very late cycle signal, and unlike two's tens or three-month tens, this only really happens in the buildup to a recession. Of course, there are differences with QE expectations, term premia, inflation risk, but the fact that 30s are trading through Fed funds is remarkable in and of itself. Ian, I'd also make a point where the Fed and empirically three-month tens apparently works best as a recession indicator. Conversations I've had with clients indicate that they still watch 2's 10s very, very closely. And one of the arguments for, oh, we're not going into recession, 2's 10s hasn't inverted yet. If you saw 2's 10s go negative, that could be a little bit of a Rubicon where even that argument that we're not going into a recession has gone away. And part of the argument against
0: using three-month bills versus tens is simply a supply argument. We know that there's been a ton of bill issuance hitting the market, and we would expect that to increase as we've passed through the debt ceiling issues.
2: Yeah. So I think that in the front end, the supply issue is certainly coming to the forefront. We saw four-week bills get pushed up to $50 billion, a 15 increase. We saw eight-week bills actually get increased for the first time in months. From 35 to 40. Okay, fair enough. Everybody knew bill supply was coming. I think an additional potential choke point that's interesting is going to be if the PBOC needs to intervene to defend their currency. Ironically, this would be directionally opposite to what the Treasury is worried about manipulating, but in essence, it would be the PBOC selling either bills or short coupon treasuries in order to raise dollars, sell dollars, and buy remnant B to support their currency. But what the effect of this could be is a buildup in primary dealer positions in the front end. We already see near record highs. In addition to increased bill supply, this could help widen Treasury OIS across the curve and increase repo rates. While I don't think that that's necessarily a base case, the parallels to the August 2015 experience where we saw a huge amount of front end selling corresponding to swap spread narrowing certainly seem to be in place, and the confluence of different things all hitting simultaneously could get a little bit messy in the front end. And frankly, we're already at all-time record high auction sizes across the curve. So the idea that Treasury OIS is widening makes directional intuitive sense. Out a couple months, I expect it to come back and narrow, but it isn't necessarily a surprise to see Treasury IS widen across a whole variety of different tenors, just from a supply-demand imbalance. How does this
0: potential repo facility that the Fed has been considering play into this
2: dynamic, if at all? So I think it absolutely does in a couple ways. One, the repo facility, depending on the details of how it's constructed, would allow the Fed to have better control over repo rates. And more particularly, what it does is it allows dealers who are sitting on billions and billions in treasury collateral to go to the Fed and exchange it for reserves intraday. That would actually allow an increase in treasury demand just because the dealers are like, okay, I can get reserves for this. I know that I can get intraday liquidity and actually reduce some reserve demand. That actually makes the end of balance sheet roll off go a little bit smoother. So it's something that I'll be watching very closely to see how much of the discussion has continued in the minutes a couple weeks out. It's possible they announce it as early as September and get things going. Certainly, it would be valuable to have in place already, and would almost certainly be valuable to have in place going into year-end in a few months.
0: Well, it's safe to say that the developments over the last couple weeks have certainly set the stage for the second half of 2019 to be a very exciting period in the Treasury market.
2: Shame they couldn't have waited until after Labor Day to kickstart all this drama. Well,
0: at least you get to wear your white pants. In the week ahead, the market will receive a couple key inputs on the data front, the most notable of which will be Core CPI on Tuesday. The consensus is for a two-tenths of a percent increase on a monthly basis. This comes off of a surprise upside in June, which we think will set the stage for Tuesday to be a very informative session in terms of the shape of the yield curve. Recall, we've been going back and forth between a policy error or flattening trade and a re-steepening on inflationary ambitions. It will be interesting to see if the market cares as much at this point about core inflation as they have in the past. Now, the reason that one might argue it's less relevant, even though the Fed has based its decision to deliver a series of preemptive rate cuts on the lack of inflation, is that the story of the last week has been a global macro story, and one about the escalations of the trade war with China, about other central banks catching up with the Fed's recent moves. So in this context, we're left to ponder what a stronger-than-expected core inflation print would actually do. That said, it's very difficult to dismiss the relevance of inflation at this point in the cycle. One of the things that we've been on about for quite some time is the concentration risk within the core inflation series on shelter costs, particularly owner's equivalent rent. Now, owner's equivalent rent obviously tracks reasonably well with residential rent and Interestingly, there's a correlation between new home sales prices and OER. What is most notable about this relationship is that when new home prices slow, and actually, frankly, they've fallen off a bit of a cliff over the course of the last year, year and a half, the translation through to lower OER tends to take about 18 months. So, said differently, the weakness that we saw at the end of 2018 really starts to become relevant as this year moves into the third and fourth quarter. So, watch this space, as they say, and that will be our primary focus within the core inflation series. The other things that tend to move around are apparel prices and new and used auto prices. They have been reasonably volatile over the course of the last couple years, but if anything, that has Been something of a downward bias. Let us not forget that we also have retail sales for July that comes out on Thursday. Now, a strong consumer is pretty much baked in at this point. The assumption has been, and it's turned out to be correct, is that the consumer is going to continue a pace very additive to the second quarter GDP print, and expectations are for that, even if it does moderate, to continue to support domestic real GDP. This suggests that if anything coming out of retail sales, there is a potential for the market to be disappointed. So, In essence, the market will take a strong retail sales print in stride, whereas a weaker gauge of consumption will add to the mounting reasons for investors to worry that the expansion might soon be coming to an end. As if the shape of the yield curve wasn't enough reason to get the market worried about recessionary fears, a slowdown on the consumption side would undoubtedly contribute even further to that. The Treasury market has been very much in a reactive mode to the incoming information related to the trade war and risk assets. We expect that will calm down somewhat in the week ahead. We continue to see a trading range in 10 and 30-year yields. And as I mentioned earlier, the response function of the shape of the yield curve to the inflation data and any update on consumption will be very very informative in terms of policy error or reflationary ambitions and we expect that that will truly characterize the price action during the balance of august we'd like to think it goes without saying that a disappointment on the core cpi print would lead to the longer end of the curve to rally rather dramatically with the risk that twos tens actually inverts The flip side there being the increasing calls and probability priced in for a 50 basis point rate cut in September, or quite frankly, we're already starting to see a non-zero probability of a intermediate cut priced in. Now, we don't think that we're going to see an intermediate cut, as we mentioned earlier, but the fact of the matter is the market has been at least incrementally willing to flirt with the idea. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And a quick reminder, just because the PBOC has ascended the stairway to 7 doesn't mean that the adventures in depreciation are completely behind us. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen I-A-N at bmo.com. That's ian.lyngen dot at b-m-o you can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BEMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable.